Welcome everyone to the Daredevil podcast by Fantastic Geek. We are the official, unofficial voice of the Marvel Cinematic Community. My name is Matt, and joining me is a guy so dedicated to the show that he has his own hidey hole where he does his secret recordings from. It's Pete. Hello, Pete. You're a cold piece of work, aren't you? The Daredevil podcast by Fantastic Geek for episode 307, Aftermath, is sponsored by Kingpin Safe Room Command Centers. Assistant lady not included. Pete, here we are in the middle of this season for Daredevil, but we have an eye to that uh, up there to the stars. We'll be talking Star Trek Discovery before you know it with the uh, the next short trek coming out. Oh my goodness, Pete, is that next week uh, in less than a week's time? And uh, ahead of more Star Trek Discovery, we have a little contest that we're uh, that we're putting together. Halloween now over, it's time for the holidays, the seasons of giving and Thanksgiving, Matt. And we are giving thanks to our listeners. We have purchased one copy of the Star Trek Discovery Season 1 Blu-ray, which is not even available yet. Uh, And we will be giving it away to one lucky winner um, on November 8th which is the night the next short trek for Star Trek Discovery hits CBS All Access. We will be revealing the winner that night, and it will be shipped to your home. You will have it. uh, Presumably, Amazon can get it to you the day that it comes out because they ship things ahead of time, day and date. So how do you win this? Matt, well, there are a number of ways and there is no limit to the number of times you can enter. Uh, You can gain an entry by leaving an iTunes review, a written iTunes review of any of the 15 Fantastic Geek podcast feeds. You can gain additional entries by uh, following us on Twitter retweeting us on Twitter, retweeting specifically the message uh, pinned at the top of our account with this information. You could like us on Facebook and get an additional uh, entry. You can share our posts on Facebook and gain additional entries. So uh, all of that will be collected and tabulated and we will be pulling one lucky winner to win the Star Trek Discovery Season 1 Blu-ray, a prize valued at about $40 minus the shipping there um, on Thursday, November 8th. Exciting time, certainly a fun way to to get hyped for uh, Star Trek Discovery Season 2 and uh, Best of luck to all who are out there trying to uh, trying to win that copy of uh, Star Trek Discovery Season 1. Order in the court! One more outburst and I'll hold you in contempt. Let's enter the evidence into the record and give the devil his due. The episode opens with triumphant music and abstract art. Welcome to the Fisk home. Is that a Theodore Rothke on the wall? But Fisk is waiting for... The painting, Rabbit in a Snowstorm. He was to have all his belongings back. The quite small lawyer on the team notes that there might be an ownership issue with that particular painting. Fisk doesn't care and walks his lawyer out of his apartment. The FBI doorman hears over the radio that there's an issue, and Fisk is told to shut his own door. Fisk walks upstairs to his walk-in closet, a small smile on his face. He goes to his 
shoe cupboard, opens it and goes down a secret stairwell to his room of screens. The operator, Mrs. Shelby, shows that there are hidden cameras pointed on his FBI captors. Then he's shown the news. For the attack at the Bulletin, everyone blames Daredevil. The credits show that the episode is written by Sarah Stryker in her first writing credit and directed by Toa Frazier, whose work we've seen previously on Iron Fist. At the church, Matt rages to Maggie. Fisk played everyone perfectly. Sister Maggie blames herself. She suggested he get his friends to help. Her immediate desire is to stitch Matt up, and after that, she'll be more careful with her advice to the devil. She asks him if he would stop the fight, give himself some time to heal, so that he can fight the evenly matched Dex properly. Of course, she doesn't know it's Dex, but hey. And where did that other daredevil get an outfit from? At the FBI, Nadim is showing the wayward footage of Daredevil Dex saying hi to Karen, to Karen. Karen asserts that that was not Daredevil. Looking at the phone of the dead and dying, now FBI evidence, Karen feels full of guilt. She and Foggy leave, but the story stays with Nadim. He tells his wife he's all right and is told that the warden is here. Later, the warden from the prison, in which Jasper Evans is not, blames some pencil pisher. How did this happen? Uh, the warden wants his lawyer. Nadim's bosses hear about this and it officially raises red flags. Maybe they are being led by Fisk. Nadim needs two days to get the facts straight. He goes to Fisk's apartment. We know Fisk is in the secret room, but Fisk doesn't know he's got a visitor. There's tension as Nadim climbs the stairs, but Fisk is in his jimmy jammies in bed after all. What can he do to help the husband of Simowith? Fisk asks for some faith in him, but he won't talk about Jasper Evans. Nadim leaves looking stunned. Elsewhere, a cop is headed for work. She says goodbye to her fellow, while the man is cameraed from behind saying goodbye. It's Melvin Potter and Daredevil's listening to Melvin and Betsy. Fisk got to Melvin using Betsy, his parole officer and lover as leverage, hence the suit copy. His old shop has been burned down. Where's his new one? Later, they go there and Matt walks into the inner cage of the workshop and gets locked in. It doesn't take long for him to break out and a brutal fight erupts. Who knew Melvin was a lover and a fighter? In a pause, Matt overhears FBI boots coming. What's Fisk doing? He's framing Matt into being Daredevil, and Melvin knows that the clone was an FBI agent. Then the FBI arrives, and it's Matt and Melvin versus a bunch of black-clad G-men. In a lull, some agents arrest Melvin while Matt slips out. At the church, Matt envisions Kingpin chastising him for not being strong enough to beat Dex, nor smart enough to beat Fisk. Matt dons the mask and goes to see Betsy. He cautions her to not go back to work, nor home, leave town, and she might live. Speaking of home, Foggy has made his way home. Marcy is overwhelmed and overjoyed to see him. He kisses her hard, and the couch gets used. Later, Marcy is really, really impressed. Foggy wants to get married, and she pumps the brakes and hops in the shower. Foggy cleans some scattered papers and finds something shocking, but later we still don't know what it is. He's got a pile of papers all over his living room. He thinks he knows what Fisk is up to. The story moves to Karen, who's at the hospital visiting the decidedly undead Ellison. However, three workers are dead with a fourth brain dead. 
The paper will bounce back, though. And they weren't attacked by the Daredevil, FYI. Elson is irate that Karen won't tell him what she knows about Daredevil. Later, she cries in the car and is pondering a trip to Vermont. She calls her father and says that she's checking in to make sure her family is all right. Can she come up and visit? Well, says Pops, the timing isn't that great. He hopes she'll do the right thing and hangs up. Lastly, Nadim makes his way home on the phone. He wants footage of when Fisk was shanked, but the law enforcement on the other side won't play ball. Ray also notes from the driveway that someone's installing a pool in the backyard. He walks into the house. Surprise party for him and his promotion. His wife toasts him and the family at dinner. All's great. But hey, can I talk to you in the kitchen, Ray? In private, his wife is terrified for their future, for his life. He goes downstairs for more soda and sees that the back door is open. Matt Murdock in black is there, not looking to fight. He's Daredevil, the real one. Stop playing into Fisk's hands. Who's in danger? The devil in red who tried to kill him, or the devil in black who's just broke into the Nadim house? This Daredevil has a tip. The attacker is in the FBI, and Agent Nadim is listening. Jackson, you're already badgering the witness. Well, what do you want me to give him a testimonial dinner? Who brought the heat into Hell's Kitchen in this episode? Pete, we must start with Fisk. We certainly have spent a little time in the previous episodes discussing how he has looked triumphant but hasn't had a smile on his face or he's <laughs> he's had moments of success but is it a true success. I mean, he is gleeful uh, when watching the news coverage that all five channels blame Daredevil. How about that smile too? That was straight up acting out of Vincent D'Onofrio there. Not like, I will take a photo with a fan and smile. This was the most awkward uh, man who doesn't ever smile, smile you've ever seen on TV. I know that he was a little self-deprecating at New York Comic Con discussing his method acting uh, habits. And I think that certainly, let's say from a, a, a British discipline of acting, uh, I gather most Brits don't go for the method and it's kind of like just create the illusion and then as soon as the moment is over on stage or screen, you're just back to you. He's making a strong case for the strength here, though, of method acting because there's just such, such, such detail, such complexity, such depth to this character. And it's over this longer course of these many, many episodes where you kind of start to see some of the, the place where the actor is living as he brings the character to life. Yeah, and we talk about this method school and how at New York Comic Con he shared the story of creating the voice and how they talked to him uh, before he took the role about how important the voice would be. Who knows, Matt, where he went to to get that. It wasn't quite a smile. It was like Kingpin's impression of a smile. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure he he went to that required revisiting um, a, a a childhood birthday party <laughs> where uh, he was given a gift, but was forced by some adult to smile at the gift giver, and and that is how he created that look. I 
I, I would be infinitely fascinated to hear more from Vincent D'Onofrio on the craft of acting because he clearly, there's just this variety of roles that he has had during the course of his career. And I, I think he probably puts as much thought into uh, the Egger suit and Men in Black mm-hmm. as this, as the kind of two-dimensional flippant character in Jurassic World. You know, I, I think they all, they all get the craftsman's touch that is uh, that of Vincent D'Onofrio. The only other way I could think that he created that approximation of a smile is that he had several members of the crew pull uh, the back of his scalp so that the, the flesh on the front of his face came up to reveal his upper teeth. Well, I know you've told the story, I think, on Mike in previous podcasts. I'm going back maybe back to previous seasons of daredevil i don't quite remember when but apparently there's stories of his time on um whatever law and order ci yeah, or whatever it was uh, yeah, during the 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 bush 43 years where news would come out about this that or the other and he would it would just be like all right well we need to stop shooting for an hour because vincent is upset about he would not come out of his trailer there were times it was specifically cited he would not come out of his trailer and act because he was upset with w bush which i mean pete we'll leave the political discussion for a later date i'm just thinking of like you know the the lighting guy that's like yep i just want to do my four hours have a lunch break do my three and i'm bouncing out of here oh hey honey gotta work late uh vincent's upset about uh the latest uh whatever mission accomplished banner so we're working late tonight sorry seems a little unfair pete well, Pete Fisk, certainly the uh, the main antagonist in this episode, but who else is on our list? Who would have ever thought at the beginning of this season that Melvin Potter would wind up as one of our defendants? You know who would have thought it, Pete, is Fisk, because we see a well-worn path, but that's not a writing criticism. We see a well-worn path by Fisk that he finds what your weakness is and exploits it. And we've known all the way since season one, whoever, whatever, whenever, why ever this Betsy was, uh, glad to see that she's a, a flesh and blood lady and whatnot. But, you know, once his Melvin's love and care for Betsy was uh, realized and understood by Fisk, it then became a thing to manipulate Melvin with. Yeah. And to maximum effect, I mean, we feel the sympathy for Melvin. He's always seemed tortured in the way that he's concerned about what Fisk could do to Betsy here. This used again in the episode, Um, I thought smartly twice first uh, when he's sending her off uh, to work and uh, confronted by uh, Matt. And then later on when he locks Matt in, um, and then they wind up both fighting with the FBI. Um, and a a physical presence at that we've, we've never seen him fight before. No, it was quite good a fight. Uh, definitely bare knuckle brawling there. I also like too, from a storytelling point of view that they didn't linger with Matt locked in a cage it was just, you know, quick, get out, keep things moving, as opposed to I, other story options. You know, he's in there and we're going to spend more time going, 
I don't know how I'll get out. Let me try and find a tool. You know, it kind of was just keep it moving, keep it moving, keep it moving. How about the uh, the swing with the with the saw blade there that Matt dodges as well? I mean, the the choreography in this season with with all the ballyhoo about Iron Fist and hey, we brought in the the Black Panther fight choreographer. Okay, none of it ever held a candle to any of the fights in this season of Daredevil. I know we got a friendly finger wag. I want to say maybe from Eric Pritchard on Twitter, but somebody was like, and it was, I think it was all in the spirit of good fun, but it was like, hey, stop taking, you know, pot shots at <laughs> Iron Fist during your Daredevil podcast. I hear you. You know, something that Pete, you and I have discussed off mic is even with the worst of the worst that we might ever see in humans, um, you know, put together a podcast that's not, an hour of dumping on it or, you know, an hour of ranting to the microphone or whatever. That said, Pete, I can genuinely say from a place of analysis, each great episode of Daredevil makes me question why it is that Iron Fist wasn't better. Um, to a smaller degree, Luke Cage, to an even smaller degree, Jessica Jones. But this is just so good. And I know it's, you know, different showrunners and different kind of show producers and things like that, but there's a Marvel TV structure in place where this should be the height and understanding why this show with its five showrunners over three seasons and all the troubles and whatnot, why is it so good? It's got to be some ingredients beyond the natural characters from the comics. Absolutely. And uh, the way that a character had appeared one note, essentially in Melvin, he's the guy that makes the suits and, uh, you know, if there was a second dimension, it was how he cared for someone, something named Betsy. And to add this next layer where he's physical, where we did not know previously he was an ex-con. Um, so that certainly deepens the abilities that he shows uh, on top of caring for this woman and wanting to protect her from Fisk by making this difficult decision against uh, Matt is really, really compelling. It is. He's a compelling character, I think, because uh, of, first of all, he's got the moral compass enough to help our anti-hero in Daredevil. So, you know, clearly that's a bonus. Then, you know, kind of some of his intellectual limitations and whatnot, and the fact that he's able to have overcome them, and he has this really neat, specific hands-on craft and whatnot that's that's unique that's sympathetic that's something that we can engage with as as audience members and then to see him turned against daredevil almost against his own will is i mean you have to feel sympathy and you have to feel pathos for the guy who's doing this to protect the woman he loves your honor may i approach the bench may i approach the bench it's time to step aside and approach the bench to discuss some off-the-record theories. You be the judge. So, Pete, let's start with Karen's check-in with Pops. She's all set to drive straight up there. She has the, the address in, pardon me, Apple Maps. Okay. <laughs> We're going to use a Windows uh, laptop, but then use Apple Maps. Like, is Karen the villain of this thing? I don't even know. No. No. Um, but the check-in with Pops... Uh, now, Pete, you've spent much more time in New England than me. Is it kind of tough New England uh, individualism or is something up 
that she's crying, hey, can I come visit and check on you? And Pop says, well, the timing isn't that great. I know you'll do the right thing, Click. Uh, Is the other side of that conversation a gun to Pop's head? Uh, No, I don't believe it to be a a gun to his head. The the interaction um, that he can call any time, but that, or that she can call any time, but can't go home. Um, she says, I tried to do the right thing. It went wrong. And he says, that's what you do, Karen. This is a pattern with her through the eyes of her father. Um, we don't know the particulars about the brother. We were promised to learn more about Karen at New York Comic Con. That's coming. Well, I'm interested to go down that path. Um, I always take Spoiler Pete's advice with a grain of salt. A, your, maybe not even a grain of salt, but with the knowledge of your track record of, of wisdom, plus the fact that uh, I do not know the future of this season, and, and you may have come across it, uh, either watching ahead or just from your own means and whatnot. I have a hard time believing that they were going to throw that conversation in there and that we're not going to get I mean, certainly I can't believe that we're not going to get more dad, which is to say we will get more dad. I'm sure of it. But some fishy about that conversation. I don't know. Can I just point out the acting prowess of Deborah Ann Wall in that scene? I mean, I don't think it was a real phone call. I think they ADR the dad in there. And when she's holding her mouth so he can't hear her audibly sob, um, was just tremendous, tremendous acting. Little D'Onofrio rubbing off there on uh, Deborah Ann Wall in terms of the method. Well, it's funny. I mean, they all, all the actors in the show always turn in really fantastic performances, but it was in that scene. It felt so real compared to everything else, which again, I'm not saying it feels unreal, but it felt so real. I was wondering, like, is this one of these scenes where, like, when you get done with the first take, like, either she needs to go again because she she knows she has the pain running and you gotta you gotta strike while the iron's hot or is it like in between takes it's like hey i need 10 minutes to just get down otherwise this grief how whatever the acting tool is like it's gonna overtake me because i'm i'm tapping into something conscious or unconscious like i need time to calm down and bring it up again i'd be interested to hear that too from her just in terms of the craft of acting The big reveal in this episode, Matt, obviously where Fisk is retreating to to monitor the 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 campaign against Matt Murdock and Daredevil, Um, this safe room command center with uh, this woman in there. Later, Felix Manning is seen in there uh, that he almost gets caught by Nadim, who enters the. Uh, apartment with uh, Fisk's back turned and something that clearly Felix uh, Manning saw and directed him. Oh, you need to get back up into bed there. Um, Really, really well staged in a believable way. But how is the FBI this bamboozled that he's got this tech that he's doing this right under their noses? Well, first of all, I'll say 
it was a well-staged scene. I think there was some story baloney there from a writing point of view. Like, you know, the notion that whoever is facing the screens won't be like, excuse me, I need to interrupt. Get upstairs right now. Otherwise, we're all, you know, <laughs> we're all toast. Um, that was kind of stretching credulity a bit. But back to your back to your larger question, the show definitely is leaning on this notion that the FBI has been manipulated to be here and and because they had not considered that until this episode um the fact that it was already you know wired and this and that the other like that was just not on their radar they could not conceive it because they thought they were in the driver's seat the entire time I find that believable enough i mean now the fact that there's secret corridors and there's presumably another entrance exit to get there so the crew can get in and out like it, it's starting to pile up the unreasonability of it but i'm interested to see if in future episodes it's like oh man we had checked out the blueprints it's not on the blueprints or just something like that to say oh okay well now that makes complete sense again well, we know they they were purchasing the building through a shell company. Okay, so the believability there. But if this didn't exist, the idea that they put it in, uh, you know, similar to some kind of Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul-esque. Uh, I know you may be familiar with it, Matt, given that you've, you've definitely not watched um, Better Call Saul. But if you're familiar with Breaking Bad, they had the meth super lab that was underneath a dry cleaning facility. Um, state of the art. And what they did on Better Call Saul in the recently concluded fourth season was they began excavating and making that subterranean state of the art meth lab under the dry cleaning facility, bringing in German architects and, um, uh, you know, workers to be brought in under cover of darkness to detonate, um, rock, uh, in a way that did not let the, uh, detonations be detected. They were using trucks backfiring and, and hitting bumps and stuff like that in a very well uh, choreographed and calculated way. Like this safe room had to already exist. I like that they don't ignore the uh, ankle uh, alarm and that they're looking at it from a top down instead of what level is he on. And, and that's how they're, you know, building in that story conceit. Yeah, to whatever degree there is a story conceit that strains believability, they keep guiding it back to somewhere on the dartboard of believability. And if it's not in the exact center, you're still kind of having that dart hit. And you're going, oh, okay, I can see how it is, how it is thus far. We'll see in these uh, upcoming episodes what direction they really uh, they take all that. Yeah. Um, how about this Santa Claus defense, Matt, on uh, fake daredevil or fair devil, as I'm calling him? I, I, I like the analogy that gets put forth there that, you know, as common as it is for us watching these shows, for people living in the MCU, as common as it is for there to be, you know, the masked hero or the masked villain 
it was kind of a nice reminder to be like, hold on, time out, don't forget. You actually don't know who is underneath that mask. Therefore, you know, don't don't automatically assume that another powered person couldn't put on the same mask. Um, I think, you know, and then the whole Santa Claus thing, you know, do you assume every every Santa Claus you see is the Santa Claus? It was a nice way to hammer that home in a very, very clear way. I'll tell you what, Foggy has become a tremendous lawyer. He was always tenacious, but we believe uh, in his ability with the law now, and he seems to always come through. Um, that that might be considered in some dramatic circles uh, unrealistic, um, but I think he's got such an everyman quality that we we you know, look the other way, um, on looking the other way, Matt. So I found it a tad unbelievable here. Nadim is hammering Karen. He's got the tape. This killer knows you. He's wearing daredevil, um, you know, armor, you know, the daredevil, who is he? You've said this in the paper. Uh, and she flips it back on him. Hey, what, what about Felix Manning? What about Red Lion Bank? Uh, it's on his to-do list. But Nadim, I didn't think it was the best acted moment we've gotten from Jay Ali. He kind of went, you know, sheepish there in a way that seemed unbelievable. Like, oh, you just pointed out a thing that I did bad and I will kind of hang my head. Um. Here's why I'll excuse it. Nadim knows, Nadim already had questions about the case that they were building, and he'd been told, yeah, yeah, no, we, we've thought it through. There's no way Fisk is bluffing. We're great. We are right. And he, he, you know, so, okay, he set that aside. Now he's pursuing what on the surface appears to be a, an open and shut case of Daredevil said, hi, Karen. Karen knows Daredevil. Let's dig in. Let's use kind of, you know, the standard question uh, tactics and pound the desk and tell me the truth and all of that. And the minute that she reminds him again, Karen Page asks better questions. It kind of is that moment of, oh, yeah, there is that whole thing that if she's telling the truth about Ray Manning and Red Lion and the hotel, this somehow can fit into that interpretation of events, too. Yikes, my killer case might not be that great. This continues to be a season of payoff. And when we talk about Betsy, Matt, this is a three plus year mystery. Um, all the way back in 2015, do we get Melvin making the suit, the mention of Betsy fearful that she's going to get harmed and that Betsy is a parole officer capable of taking care of herself yet he still worries for her obviously he's in love uh and we know that fisk doesn't care if you're a cop or a po or whatever it is but that he's a con that she was his and presumably still is parole officer um i i think it was a great unnecessary but bountiful bonus way to paint this character the fact that she was not a dog or a plant or an imaginary friend and was a real flesh and blood woman with whom he was having a romantic relationship um 
her as a person, it could have been anything. And she's in, what, two scenes? So it could have been just, uh, hey, casting notice. Get, like, how old's Melvin Potter? Like, I don't know, 35? Get the most attractive, you know, and get her in there for two scenes. But instead, not that this lady was not attractive, I'm just saying to get to instead say, hey, we want to cast somebody who's tough, who can carry a badge, who can use lethal force if necessary, who also is concerned about getting people's lives turned around and you can sense her whole backstory behind the scenes, unshown in the episode. You can just kind of sense that she's a complete person who we happen to run into for two scenes. That's a smart move. Absolutely. This warden, Matt, that is brought in by Nadim, that he refuses to answer, he clams up, he lawyers up. Is this again the work of Fisk? That is absolutely how I read it. I mean, I think the lawyer's first name was Sai, and his last name was, and look at my nails, because it'll be like, there's a question. He'd be like, well, I got to look at my hand here. That's a really tough question, whatever it was. Um, I, there's no way to read it other than, hey, I've covered my tail enough to be able to say this isn't my fault. And anything beyond this, I should be protected by a lawyer, but I read it as he is totally, totally in on it. Nadim goes to Watley, says he needs two days to prove that um, Fisk is playing them, which the way the episode ends is an interesting clock that has started. It is, and I appreciate on the one hand the need for a story clock and time frames and things of that sort i i was not entirely clear why outside of the story and the need the need to not wrap things up in episode three uh 308 you gotta stretch it to 313 and all of that um why is it that watley gives him two days as opposed to one day as opposed to you know as opposed to the her immediate concern i thought was one that was so genuine a we need to bring in the bosses in on this because we all may have screwed up terribly, and the worst, worse than screwing up is trying to cover it up. Um, but then beyond that, it's like, you know, if justice needs to be meted out differently, like, uh, you know, the Albanians now need to be set free because it was tainted fisca evidence or things of that sort. Better do it now versus the arrests that are going to happen tomorrow or the arrests that are going to happen the day after that. Um, let's clear the deck and get this story right ASAP. Foggy thinks he knows what Fisk is up to. He's meticulously gone through these files. Marcy uh, finds him doing this. What is Fisk up to? I I felt like it was a bit of a story cheat how they rolled all that out. Now, it's only a cheat, I guess, because I want to find out exactly what Foggy has figured out. And they were setting that up for trajectory to carry us from this episode to the next episode. Um, if Foggy has the pile of papers to put together everything that Karen has been saying, it'll be a little unsatisfying because she's already on the case without piles of papers and she has that, that sense. Um, if it's something larger, like he's got the building codes that are like install one secret hideaway room and, you know, 14 miles of cable and hidden camera company. You know, that's that's obviously going to gonna be impossible because it's a bit ridiculous. I guess I'm hoping for some sort of bigger reveal, whatever it might be. 
last one for me, Matt. Nadim called out by his wife, Seema, here for lying to her. Is it something to be admonished for, or is this a man just trying to not worry his wife? I think it's both. I mean, I think... I think and then that, he does it again with the yeah. with the beer bottle. <laughs> um, I think he's making the best decisions that he can to serve this equal marriage that he has, but also serve the people in a line of work that is dangerous. Um, my concern moving forward, Pete, now that we've been re-reminded, she's a great wife. She's a, a, a well-rounded character. You know, she's, it's, she's not just, you know, there with a rolling pin or there always supportive. You know, you get a sense of her being a complete character. The adorable little boy, Pete, I'm now like worried, well, what's going to happen to one of the two of them? Because what does Fisk do? Fisk manipulates people and we have that scene where fisk is in bed you know all set for sleepy time except for uh except for uh you know a uh, a sleeping cap you know he makes reference to nadine being the husband of sima mm -hmm. i mean that's a scary scary moment there that for 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 nadine and for me as an audience member it is and uh i half expected when the door was cracked in the basement that it was going to be one of Fisk's goons and not daredevil. Well, we shall see if, uh, if that family remains intact through the rest of the season. We've been using our enhanced senses to monitor the frequencies. Here's what you had to say. Pete, there was a tweet from JT Adkins uh, in reply to uh, our posting on uh, episode 306, The Devil You Know. He said, I've never seen Daredevil, but how did they get all the way to their third season before titling an episode, The Devil You Know? Your thoughts, Pete? Well, first, my thought that I tweeted at him was, how have you not watched Daredevil? And two, that the episode title, the previous episode from this one was just so excellently chosen when we get to the uh, doppel devil um, situation there. Uh, so they, they wisely held off and now pursuing this hardcore comic storyline when there is an imposter of the man without fear um, and that just tremendous fight that took place in the bulletin. I think too, the, the, the show, uh, has been a little bit more, um, serious, maybe with some of that, like episode titles, etc. It's been a little bit more serious than maybe the shows that have followed it. You know, I think of how the two seasons of Luke Cage have all been song titles, how every Jessica Jones is an AKA. Like, I think that this being just the first one out of the gate, there probably was that, you know, like this needs to be high end. This needs to be serious. This can't be, you know, goofy stuff. Um, it, you know, it needs to kind of, this needs to be a grown up show and not be too comic booky. Whereas here you get these years later and it's like, you know what, if you have a pun in the title, it's not a big deal. Well, in defense of Luke Cage, I think that 
the two seasons, the first one, uh, those were Wu Tang albums. Um, I think maybe the second season was the first one. No, second season so. was was different. Um, but but that they were real uh, song titles, I think, added a layer of of realism. Plus, establishing that that stuff happened in their world as well. Um, and even the second season of Iron Fist titles, those were all Iron Fist comic titles. Pete, the first season of Luke Cage were all gang star gang songs. Star. Okay. okay. Um, and then season two was Pete Rock and Seal Smooth. Yes. yes. Um, and not obscure, but not super, you know, super duper well known. Um, but, you know, I, I would, uh, I'd, Argue against that that only Daredevil hath had serious title names. Um, yeah, I, I think Luke Cage, uh, R.I.P. Taken too soon there, uh, at least as far as uh, his solo show, um, you know, needs to get the respect it deserves. Iron Fist, we know, was a mixed bag. It was certainly on the rise. Um Hopefully we'll we'll get some kind of resolution soon there. Pete, one more tweet. This one from James. That's at Big Killen, K I L L E N. Uh, he says to us watching DD three hundred five. This bullseye flashback scene is just superior TV. It feels like the best of the Twilight Zone. Stephen King and Stan Lee had a baby, <laughs> except only the French make champagne. <laughs> I felt better about some of the goofier aspects of it once I read that tweet in light of the Twilight Zone um, reference. So uh, thanks, James. You helped me better come to grips with that episode. I would say, too, in defense of the reference to Spanish Champagne, um, yes, I know because I'm of the age where I saw Wayne's World a zillion times. I know that, you know, uh, everywhere else has to be called sparkling white wine and things of that sort. To me, to colloquially say, oh, this is Spanish champagne, it's actually not French, I kind of was, you know, like, I feel like the colloquialism champagne and then saying, well, it's technically Spanish because that doesn't fit, but we don't, we're not going to have a wine discussion right now. I kind of feel like the, the episode had a little wiggle room there that, that maybe our pal James wasn't quite affording the episode. I'm not familiar with champagne, but uh, I, I know of Champagne. <laughs> Only the best for you, Pete. And Pete, we get the best from our listeners who visit patreon.com slash fantastic geek. Whether it's money spent on Champagne or champagne, in truth, neither. Uh, hopefully they're getting bang for their buck, helping support us, helping keep us listener supported. Absolutely. It is not inexpensive to bring you the champagne of podcasts as often as we do. And uh, we're really helped out by all our contributors at patreon.com slash fantastic geek. Everybody who contributes gets exclusive podcast content. And then there are all sorts of levels. I believe we have a Spanish sparkling wine level. Uh, It's about $2,000 a month, but boy, does it clear the palate? 
<laughs> Indeed, Pete, and uh, we we do proudly hold that moniker of listener supported. Uh, it really is those people who visit us on Patreon, and uh, you know who help help keep things moving along here, particularly during these busy times. They are our uh, our angels on both shoulders. But Pete, people expecting, people looking for a divine conversation. How can they talk to you on Twitter? You can find me on Twitter at Peter, P-I-E-T-E-R-J-K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, K-E-T-E-L-A-A-R, 10,138 followers. Can't be wrong. And while I'm personally on Twitter as Looking Back Lost, do be in touch with the podcast. Comment on FantasticGeek.com. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Gmail for Fantastic Geek as well. But wait, there's more. Facebook.com slash Fantastic Geek with the PH, all one word. Like it today. Remember our giveaway for Star Trek Discovery Season 1. That's just another way in which you can earn an entry. Pete, we will be back on both the Pop Culture Podcast feed and the uh, Daredevil Podcast feed on Sunday, talking the next episode of Daredevil. Something tells me, though we are just barely past the halfway mark, I feel like what's left of this season is gonna is gonna move very very quickly for us, for the listeners, for everybody, and it's a ride I'm excited about. But with that, I will say adios to all the listeners and give you Pete the final word. Keep talking. 